Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. To turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, as Rob mentioned, we're splitting up the, the sermon text this week because it's somewhat long. And so uh, we broke it up into two sections. And so we're going to continue this story that we started reading in 1 Samuel 19. And here's how it continues in chapter 20. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asks leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But if it should please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you can come to me. Uh, then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. 
The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why is not the son of Jesse come to the mill, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's side, to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You are a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor the kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after a boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called for the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground, and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Most gracious Father, we ask that you would strengthen us now as we consider your word. Help me to preach clearly that we might hear the gospel and be comforted. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, this is just a a wild story. If you're, you know, paying attention to kind of what all is going on in this story, uh, it's full of all kinds of, of twists and turns and family drama, and I mean, it, it would, this whole story really would make an absolutely fantastic movie or like miniseries or something. It, it would, you know, rival Yellowstone in, in the wildness, not that I've ever watched that. Um, it would, I didn't admit anything right there. It would rival Yellowstone in the wildness of what's going on. And, 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 and here it is in the Bible. And, and it starts off, you know, I mean, it's, it's this kind of continuing story of what we looked at last week between Jonathan and David and Saul and David. And, and, and as I told the kids, it really does drive us to this point of kind of seeing what it looks like to follow the true king or not to follow the true king. And, and as the story goes, 
it starts with Jonathan and David, uh, you know, kind of trying to figure things out because David's convinced that, that Saul wants to kill him. And, and Jonathan's like, no, that's not going to happen. So Jonathan talks to his dad and is like, hey, what gives? And, and Saul promises, I won't lay a hand on him. I won't kill him. But then as the story continues, clearly Saul's attitude towards David changes dramatically. And his attitude towards Saul, I mean towards Jonathan, changes dramatically. And his attitude towards Michael, his daughter, changes dramatically. And, and the rest of 1 Samuel, really we've got these different scenes of stuff happening where, where Saul is constantly trying to kill David. This becomes, at least from, from the literary perspective of 1 Samuel, trying to get rid of David becomes like the driving force in Saul's life for the rest of the story. And really for the rest of his life. He's trying to eliminate David, trying to get rid of him. And, and as we read through this story, we, we begin to, to notice that, that, that again, the, the problem that Saul has is that David is being pictured and being presented as greater than Saul. The, the first seven verses is where we have this conversation with Jonathan and, and Saul, where Saul says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to... He makes this kind of... He swears by God that he won't kill David. But then everything changes with the first clause of verse 8. And there was war again. And the reason everything changes there is because David did what the king does, what, what David does. He went out and he just smoked people and was shown once again to be greater than Saul. He, he goes, his war again, notice it's with the Philistines, the one people that Saul was told to kill, that he was never able to kill, and he struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. So uh, again, we've got this kind of literary picture of David just in that simple sentence. He struck the Philistines with a great blow so that they fled before him. Just that sentence is, should remind us by this point in the story that, oh yeah, David is being presented as the true king. He's being exalted as the one who can do what, what Saul could never do. He's being picked. And, and so immediately we're told that this harmful spirit comes on Saul. And, and we've just got this story that unfolds and, and really is the undoing of Saul as it continues. He tries to get Michael, his daughter, to, to kind of work with him. And, and what has happened in the story is, is, is last, last week as we looked at chapter 18, Saul was kind of working in, through these clandestine ways. Like, well, I'll send him off to war with not enough people so that he'll be killed. But then he's not killed. Well, well now what happens in the story is Saul's like, you know, forget the clandestine stuff. I'm just outright going to try and kill this dude. Michael, I'm coming to your house to kill your husband. He's not there or he's sick. Good. Bring him to me so we can kill him. I mean, he, he, he moves on from trying to, for, from any covert action to, to just being overt about what he's trying to do. I want him dead. And he's not hiding it anymore. At, at this point, everybody, except for Jonathan, is, is a touch naive, it seems, but everybody is aware of what's going on. Saul is trying to kill David. And it's a wildly grisly scene all throughout. And so, so that's kind of the story that we're looking at. And then after all that, Jonathan and David come up with this plan of like, hey, here's how we're going to put the pieces together and, and figure out is 
is Saul really trying to kill you? David, of course, knows. They come with this plan, shooting the arrows, all that, and, and David ends up fleeing. So, so that's kind of the story. And, and what I want to do is, is I want to draw out kind of four points, two that are related that we'll look at at the end, and then two that are, that are they're related but less related. The first has to do with, with the reality of the humanness of the story that I want us to see. The, the humanness of the story. The second point that I want us to kind of tease out a little bit is the role of the Spirit in all of this. The third is the, the, that I want us to see is that, that following the true king means like, like that will cost us everything. And then the fourth point that I want us to see is not following the true king will cost us everything also. So, so those are the points that we're going to kind of pull out of the story as we look. And so, so the first thing is this, this reality of the humanness of the story. We've got this, this problem, and I'm going to give an example, and I'm going to be gentle, I'm going to be nice about it, but we've got this problem when we come to the Bible that we come to it with this, this kind of imaginary morality that, that, that we're, we're often where we're trying to, it seems like, outstrip the Bible in our piety. And, 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 and it affects how we read the story. Because if, if I were to say, hey, what was David's sin? And, and we read Psalm 51 earlier, so particularly this morning, it'd be, you'd be like, oh, well, that whole situation with Bathsheba and Uriah, like that was a real problem. And it was. Absolutely. But the, the problem that we have is, is we miss the, the, the humanness of what's going on in David's life. We, we miss that, you know what? Like he wasn't actually a... This, this great guy all the time, and then the situation with Bathsheba happened. That, that's not how the Bible presents him at all. And, and in fact, the Bible never presents any of its figures, save Christ, obviously. It never presents any of its figures as kind of above the fray, ever. At no point is any human in the Bible presented as kind of being above the fray. Abraham, you know, lies about Sarah being his wife. His son does the same thing. We, we've got, you know, just, you know, Samson and all those fun stories, you know, that like just over and over and over. No one is presented as being above the phrase. Even Paul, the apostle, of course, he murdered people. But then when, when you read his letters at different times, you're like, uh, yeah, that doesn't seem like the best way to handle that situation. Like, you're just going to be salty with this dude and be like, you know what, you don't get to go with us anymore. You're off the trip. No more ministry for you. It's just like, like, no, Peter denies Jesus three times, along with all the other, like, you know, foot and mouth kind of things that Peter did throughout his life. So the Bible never presents these characters as above the fray. And, and we see that with David. We read this story, and, and probably there's a couple of things that you missed in this story. I, I missed them anyway for, for a long time as I read the story. But, but there's the scene with Michael. Chapter 19, verses 11 uh, and following. They're, they're wanting to kill David, and so he escapes through a window. And, of course, we could attach that to you know, a number of things. But that's not what I want us to see. Verse 13 after he has escaped through the window and fled, it says Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with clothes. And for a long time, I just read that and was like, oh, okay, so this is like Ferris Bueller's Day Off kind of situation where he makes the, like, 
thing that looks like somebody's in bed so his parents will believe he's sick, all that. And, and that is what happened. But here's what's interesting about this. The, the word image there is the word for idol, for like a household idol. Like, like uh, what, what Rachel had when, when she hid him under, except for this one is apparently not an easily hidden one because it's the size of a man. Right? So this wasn't like you could hide it in the set. Like, she put it in the bed, and they're like, oh, David's sick. Right? So at some point, we've got to stop and go, wait a minute. Why did David have that? What is going on here? How is the true king of Israel, this man after God's own heart, as we often kind of weirdly interpret it, why did he have a life-size idol in his house? That's clearly against the law of God. What's going on? Well, we know that Saul had him, you know, marry Michael to be a snare to him. So we could kind of weasel out of it and be like, well, maybe it was all, you know, the wife's fault. Maybe it was Michael's fault. And that's how she was going to be a snare to him. Perhaps, perhaps. But, but David had this household idol that they would have bowed down to and used for divination. And like, what is going on here, David? So that's the first kind of piece of, of kind of like the human story that we see where it's like, okay, David wasn't, when, when we say he was a man according to God's own heart, like what we don't mean by that is that he got it all right until Bathsheba. Not at all. Then later in the story, chapter 20, David and Jonathan are coming up with this plan and he says, here's the deal. Tell your dad that I'm going to Bethlehem for this family get together, family reunion for the new moon, Right? You're like, okay, cool. But that was an outright lie. That was never the plan. David was not going back to Bethlehem. He just made that up because he's trying to save his own skin. And and here's the thing about both of these issues. The Bible doesn't even speak at all to the morality of either one of those issues. It just lets him be there. It just lets him be there. Now, here, here's, I want to, Paul, we're going to keep looking at some more kind of human realities in this earth, but here's what I want us to think about. Sometimes we don't give ourselves, and I want to be careful how I say this, sometimes we don't give ourselves the same freedom that the Bible gives the characters in the Bible. Let me give you an example, because I want to be clear. I'm not saying we need to give ourselves the freedom to sin and to worship idols and life. That's not what I'm saying. But, but here's, here's what I want us to think about for a second. In this story, David obviously was in a hard spot. We're in a hard spot, right? Like, what are you going to do? The king is trying to kill you. You're married to the king's daughter, so he's got access. You're best friends with the king's son. He's got access. Like, it's a bad situation. How do you handle that? Years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and, and we love to do these kind of things to ourselves. Not me and this friend, all of us. We love to, like, think about Anne Frank or, or some situation like that, and you're like, okay, so, if you were hiding Jews during the war, and, you know, the police came and asked, what would you do? Would you lie? Or would you tell the truth and, and, and kind of be faithful? And, and we love to, like, I, I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but we, we, we love to put ourselves in these imaginary hypothetical situations 
and try to figure out like what would we do. And, I, and here's what I remember about this particular conversation. I was younger and dumber and, and like more arrogant and prideful than I am now. And I was like, I would tell the truth and trust God. You know, I was just like, ah, yes. And my friend was like, oh, I would absolutely lie. Didn't even bat an eye. And so then we ratcheted up the question. What if someone came to your house or came to you and said, deny Jesus or I'm going to kill you on the spot? What would you do? And I was like, again, being my dumb brash, I was like, I wouldn't deny him. I would stand strong. Like, that's a lie. I've like run into my wife in the middle of the night when we were both up and screamed like a child and ran away. Like, I would lie and run. And, and, and here's the thing. My friend that I was talking to was like, oh, I would lie and then just ask for forgiveness when I got away. <laughs> Didn't bat an eye again. And here, here's why I tell this story. We put ourselves in these situations and get ourselves all twisted up about these imaginary situations. I'm not saying the Holocaust is bad. Let me be very, like, that was a real situation, okay? I'm saying we put ourselves in those situations and get ourselves all twisted up about these moral situations that we actually find in the Bible, and the Bible doesn't comment on the morality of what David did or what the Hebrew midwives did in Egypt. And, and here's... Here's what we're doing to ourselves when we're, when we're doing that, I think. We're not trusting the grace of God. It's easy for us to go, oh yeah, we'll stand strong, faithfulness, all that. You know what? In that situation, in that conversation with me and my friend, he was the one that was trusting the grace of God. Why? Because I was operating from a place of like, no, I've got, we've got to be faithful. Stand strong to the end. If you don't conquer to the end. And he was like, no, 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 God will forgive me. I'm putting all my chips in the basket of the gospel. I'll lie and repent, and God will save me. We miss the fact that the Bible and the stories of the Bible are written about humans and written for humans. And what they're announcing over and over and over is grace for those humans grace for those humans. So David can be presented as the true king of Israel, not the actual Messiah that's going to die for the sins of the people, but as the true king of Israel and have this teraphim, this image, this idol in his house, and lie to save his own skin. And God can still be pleased with him. Now I want to be real clear. I'm not saying go sin just because. No. No, no, no. But if we don't have such a picture of the grace of God, if we don't have such a picture of the gospel, if we, if we don't have such a picture of the, of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, that we're freed from the fear of sinning and being lost, then we've missed the overwhelming nature of the grace of the God that we serve. We've missed it. We need the Bible to be this human. We need the Bible to be this honest. Because we need it to speak to us how we actually are. Now, as the story continues, it gets actually e even more this way. One of the things that, that we do with, with translation 
is, is we kind of whitewash stuff. And, and when the Bible gets, gets real salty in its language, and, th- and this happens, this isn't just the only place it happens, it's just a particularly exciting example. When the Bible gets real salty in its language, we, we get like real literal in how we translate it, and sometimes we get like, we use like Victorian language structure to translate it, and we miss what's going on. So, so just a few minutes ago, I read this scene where Jonathan and Saul are talking, and Jonathan's like, oh, you son of a rebellious and adulterous woman. And, and, and like you can read it in a way where you're like, oh, yeah, that was, they were having a conversation. Here's how the New Living Translation deals with this passage, and I think it does better. I actually think you could change one particular word and get even closer to what Jonathan or what Saul was saying to Jonathan. You stupid... Son of a whore. Now here's why I think this matters. Here's why I think this matters. It's not just because I want to get to use salty language in the pulpit and I found my opportunity. No. Here's why I think this matters. We need to see the intensity of this situation. This wasn't just like a strong discussion between father and son about how to run the kingdom. Saul was abusively dog-cussing his son because his son had rejected him as the true and living king and had given everything away. And, And Saul was coming after Jonathan. The... One of the most conservative and helpful translations of the Bible is the Net Bible. It's by a group of guys mostly from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and, and, and in their notes, they're very clear about how this should be translated. And they go further than even the New Life Translation, New Living Translation. Because they understand what's happening here. This is an all-out fight between fathers. And, and this is how it ends. Just so we know that like, I'm not just making this up. Saul hurled his spirit him to strike him. This wasn't just a strong discussion. This was a fight where the dad was willing to kill the son. We don't, here, here's why I think we don't need to gloss over this stuff. Because when we read this story and we look at our lives and we look at our families and we look at our failures, and we look at our struggles, we need, we need these stories to line up. We need these stories to match. If the sinners in the Bible aren't as sinful as you and I, then it might not have as much to say to us as we think. We need the Bible to be a story about the living God of all creation coming in the flesh to save men and women who fell in the most fantastic ways. Or we don't have a story that's for us. The good news is that's exactly what we have in the Bible is the story of a God coming to earth to deal with sinners that sin in the most glorious ways you can imagine. 
And we need the Bible to have that in it. And we need to be honest about it when it does. We need that level of of humanness and, and, and conviction of what's going on in the Bible. Because we need to be able to, to see, okay, this is how David was. This is how the scene was. He had these false gods. He was a liar. But still, when he called out to God about this situation with this murderous guy, uh, father-in-law, and he, he can say, I'm innocent, so save me. Because he knows that when he says that, And when he calls out to God, I'm innocent, so save me. He's not making this absolute declaration that I've never sinned in my life. He's saying, I'm I'm not doing anything wrong towards Saul right now. And he's trying to kill me, so save me. And we need to hear that because when when we don't let the Bible be that human, we don't let the characters be that real and that honest with about where they are, then, then we read those Psalms and we think they're not for us. Because we look at our lives and we're like, I can't say I'm innocent. And then the next thing we do, and, and we do this to ourselves, we can act like we don't, but we do. The next thing we do to ourselves is we go, well, if I can't say the first part of this Psalm, if I can't pray the first part of this Psalm, that, that declares I'm innocent in this situation, can I pray the second? Do I ask God to save me? We need these stories to be dishonest. We need that language, that salty language in the Bible. And I get it offends. I get it's words we're not supposed to say, it's bad words. But we need it there. So that we can see that we have a God who saves real sinners. Second point that I wanted to make from this passage has to do with the Spirit. And I'm going to be brief on this. If you have questions, you can, um, I'm having to edit as I go, but you can ask questions. If you've got more questions, we can have another discussion later on. But starting in chapter 16, we started seeing this phrase in different ways about Saul. A harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. What do we do with that? Because we read it, and, and almost every time that you see that, chapter 16, uh, chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, uh, chapter 16, verse 14, chapter 18, 10 and 11, then chapter 19, it always follows David doing something awesome. So in chapter 16, he's anointed as king. Then the spirit leaves Saul and a harmful spirit comes on. In chapter 18, he wins the battle, and then a harmful spirit. Chapter 19, he wins the battle, harmful spirit comes on Saul. What is going on here? What do we do with all of this? I, I want to be brief in, 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 in handling that. There, there's, there, there's a world of, of, of kind of articles and theories and all kinds of things going on. And, and I just want to give us some categories for how we think about this very quickly. First of all, we can stick with the Bible that tells us that God doesn't tempt people to sin. Okay, So we don't have to like somehow put it in that category. That's not what's going on. The, the next thing that we can say is we can, we can keep a distinction between, uh, because some people would read this and be like, oh, he went crazy, like mental health issues. And, and they were just kind of like, you know, pre-scientific and they didn't know about like mental health. And so they, you know, just described or explained it by well, just the spirits, right? We don't have to do that either. We don't have to make it either mental health or 
demons, spirits, whatever. We, we, we can kind of keep those separate. We can even recognize that it's kind of a Venn diagram that sometimes those realities overlap, okay? So we, we've got to be careful with what we do with this. But here's, in, in, in the, the Hebrew mind, in the ancient mind, like, they would have seen all of this, just like in the story of Job, they would have seen all of this as under the control of the sovereign God of all creation. So for them to say, oh, a harmful spirit from the Lord, they're, they're, what they're recognizing there in part, at the very least what we can say, is what they're recognizing is that what was going on here wasn't outside of God's control. God wasn't like, oh, that one got away. Like, dang it, what do we do now? Like, it wasn't outside of his control. He let Job be tormented. He let his son be tormented. He's letting Saul here be tormented. Paul talks about giving people over to Satan so that they will learn not to sin. That's a disciplined step that maybe we can explore sometime. I don't know. Like, and I think that's part of what's going on here. Is God is letting stuff happen to Saul that is affecting him to his core. Why? Because he's rejected God's plan and he's rejected God's kink. And he's leaving him completely undone. And so it doesn't mean that Saul's outside of the reach of the mercy of God or the grace of God or the, the, the saving hand of God at all. But it does mean that God is letting him be tormented in a profound way. If you want, if you want to talk more about that, we can. I want to move through that point quickly. The, the third and fourth points go together. You can't, if you follow the king, it's going to cost you everything. Second point, if you don't follow the king, it's also going to cost you everything. And here we move into kind of who the main character of of these stories is, and that's Jonathan. Jonathan is in this position where he's being faced, as he was last week in chapter 18, he's being faced with, am I going to follow the true king of Israel or the false king of Israel? Am I going to follow David and swear my fidelity to him and serve him and walk with him, or am I going to follow Saul, my dad? It's a real choice. He loves David. David's like his best friend, right? He's given him at the end of chapter 18, or beginning of chapter 18, he gives him all his like, you know, armor and everything. He's like, you're the next king. You're it. Loves him as his own soul, the Bible says, multiple times. On the other hand, Saul is his father. And clearly there's some trauma bonding going on with his dad, right? And this story, like, it's intense. But Saul's his dad. And so he's in this kind of weird place where, where David's like, hey, I think your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, there's no way. You've saved his rear. And David's like, yeah, that's why he wants to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, 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 that, there's no way. There's no way. But eventually, Jonathan is faced with the reality. If I can either follow the true king, or I can follow my dad. But if I choose to follow David, it is absolutely going to cost me everything. I'm going to lose my family. That's the salty part that we read earlier. You stupid son of a whore. Don't you know? Don't you know? If you, I, know you, I know you're in this with David. Don't you know what's going to happen 
You've lost the kingdom. You're a shame to your, to your mother's name. Like, I mean, he's just like, give it. And then he tries to kill him. And, and I love, like, there's something comical to me about this. I probably shouldn't be. But verse 33, Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. And then the explanation. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Pretty clear. He's willing to kill me in order to get to David. I think maybe his position has changed from earlier in the story. And at this point, David knows my only hope is to either go all in with dad or all in with David. But it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me either my friendship with David or it's going to cost me my relationship with my father. You only get chocolate or pecan pie. You don't get both. And Jonathan chooses, as we read the story, to follow David. And he swears his fidelity to him. And in the process he says, but here's the deal, David. If I'm going with you, you've got to stick with me. Because if I put all my, if I put all my eggs in your basket, like I'm counting on you to save me, to save my kids. I'm giving it all to you. I have no plan B. I've got nothing else. I've walked away from all of it. And David's response is, I've got you. And, and what he does throughout the rest of it, he does. When, when all of Saul's family has been killed, but this, but this one son of Jonathan who's crippled, David's like, bring him to my house and I will feed him and care for him as my own child. Because the true king is faithful to those he promises to save. But Matthew 10 reminds us that it does cost everything to follow Christ. We don't like to think about this reality. But here's what what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what we see playing out here with Jonathan. You can follow the true king apart from everything else, or you can lose everything else. And that's the other side of the coin. Because we think, oh, well, I don't want to lose everything else, so I'm not going to follow Christ. But, but Saul serves as, as this kind of foil to that plan because he chooses not to follow the true king but guess what in the end it costs him everything also it cost him his daughter michael it cost him his son jonathan it cost him the kingdom that he's trying so hard to protect it cost him his own life that he's trying to protect so so as we think about what it means to follow the king here here's what we need to keep in mind It's not follow the king and lose everything or save yourself and keep it. 
See, that's not, that hasn't set the equation up correctly. It's follow the king, and it may cost you everything to follow him. Or try to get it and protect it and keep it all yourself and lose it anyway. That's the equation. That's how that gets balanced out. It's, it's not a choice between two good things. It's a choice between, I, I'm, I'm going to lose everything in this life one way or another. And I can either lose it and gain salvation by following the true king and walk in the security of the kingdom of God or the illusion of the security that I've created for myself. See, those are the options that we're faced with. That's the reality. That's the reality of life in the kingdom. And that's what's pictured for us here. And so here's my encouragement to you. Think, think rightly about the situation. It's, it's going to cost you everything one way or another. You can't protect yourself. You can't secure yourself. It's all out of your control. So it's going to cost you everything one way or another. It can cost you everything in a way that you have nothing left. Or it can cost you everything in a way that you're kept by Christ. That you're kept by the true king of all creation. That you're kept by his grace. By his power. By his faithfulness. See, that's where we get the freedom to lay ourselves down. That's where we get the freedom to to give up. That's where we get the freedom to to be broken and poor before God and man and still filled with joy. That's where we get the freedom to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be peacemakers is by recognizing if I follow the true king, I can let go of everything and he will keep me. Forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that that the king does keep those who turn to him, who take refuge in him. And we pray, Father, that we would be able to put off the illusion that we can somehow keep the stuff of this life that's important to us and be content laying everything down to follow Christ our King, who laid everything down to secure us for himself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.